for November 27th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 491, Tarving the Kirky. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to the level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I said the level of scrutiny, not a level of scrutiny. What do you think that means, Pete? What do you think, like, the level is? I think we finally compiled enough data to make the move from <laughs> indefinite to definite in our prognostications and analysis. Yeah, it's it's fantastic that machine learning has advanced to the point <laughs> where we can al- algorithmically determine the single level of scrutiny that the popular culture doesn't deserve. It does imply that every other level is what it deserves. <laughs> That it deserves every degree greater and every degree lesser. And this is the one level that it does not deserve. That's interesting. That's almost like a many worlds uh, quantum hypothesis, right? Like there's only uh, there, you know, there are there are worlds in which you and I are are greater men and lesser men. But there is no world in which we are exactly the men that we are uh, today and subjecting the popular culture to the level of scrutiny. It probably probably no, no, it's too early. We have 59 minutes to go. Uh, If you haven't sussed it out yet, the overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when Pete and I are talking on a Skype call together and recording it for for your edification and amusement. Uh, We hope that we edify and amuse you. Uh, I'm Matt, and that's Pete. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. We often have other people, too, but this time it's just us. It's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I'm feeling a, a sort of narrative urge. Oh? Yes, almost as though it's one of our storied two-handers. Ba-ba! <laughs> Zing! Um... Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's great, and it's uh, it's the first podcast after Thanksgiving. I traveled a little for the holiday. Pete, did you travel a little for the holiday? I did. I did the I did the twofer. I did the uh, double family Thanksgiving. Oh wow, double yeah. double family. What does it mean? <laughs> As in, I went to my fiance's family and then to my family. Yes, no, no, no. I knew what it meant. I meant, oh. I meant in a in a more you know uh, acid trippy double rainbow sense. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I did some travel uh, as well around the holidays, and and um, ended up eating. Uh, I had a friends' giving and then a family Thanksgiving, and it was uh, it was a nice uh, it was a nice time. Ate a lot of ate a lot of turkey. But before we talk turkey, hey, uh, it's one of my favorite. Uh, it's one of my favorite shameless cash grab marketing promotions of the year. Pete, do you know what time that is? Uh, no. Well, why don't you tell me, Matt? It's, it's overthinking it gift guide time. <laughs> I like the gift guide. I think the gift guide is great and very useful. I really, I really enjoy the gift guide. Uh, every year, this is. Uh, can you believe this is the tenth gift guide? Wow. Yeah. It seems just yesterday I was telling everyone to buy Crank Two on DVD for their loved ones. <laughs> that was that was man, that was that long ago. Geez. DVD, not even Blu-ray. DVD, right? That's how <laughs> lo- that's how long ago it was. Uh, yeah, we started in 2008 doing the uh, doing the gift guide. So this is the tenth year. Um, that we have offered a set of uh, uh, of gift recommendations on overthinking it, and uh, you know this is something that we were doing. Everyone does it now, 
now, right? It was, I, I feel like we've kind of come to a, to a thing, uh, come to a point in the culture where like everyone sort of realizes it's a kind of affiliate marketing, uh, revenue diversifying promotion, fourth quarter cash grab, uh, a little bit. And that's, um, that's, that's what ours is as well. But I like to think that ours kind of hues to the principles of overthinking it in that our recommendations are fun. Uh, the blurbs we write about them are smart. Um, and, you know, I, the holidays are a sort of uh, communal time. Like the idea of gift giving involves relationship, right? Like involves you giving a gift to someone else or giving a gift to yourself. Be your own Santa. Be the Santa you want to see in the world. Uh, Mother Teresa said that, or maybe it was Einstein. And the, um, the, uh, the gift guide you can find on overthinkingit.com. Just go to the homepage there and uh, you'll see an awesome little animated graphic that was made by our own Matt Belinky. It's so uh, uh, it's so festive, so holiday appropriate. The ugly holiday sweater graphics you can find uh, there and click through. And uh, we've recommended a number of products in a, a bunch of different categories: uh, electronics, books, um, you know, uh, beard care, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> I like the beard care guide in particular. I think well, it'll be very useful. Uh, yeah, you ought to like it. You wrote it. <laughs> it was it was hard learning that stuff. I had to ask a lot of people for help, some of whom is claimed that they knew nothing and others who claimed they learned a lot. So my own experience this past year with a beard in various stages of length or shortness is communicated to you through the Overthinking It gift guide. I think it's called Santa's Holiday Beard Guide. Is what it is, yeah. That's Something what, along those that's lines. Exactly. So if you celebrate Hanukkah, Santa also wants to help you with your beard. Because that's one thing all, all, all the Abrahamic faiths in particular have in common, as well as many of the Dharmic faiths, is some degree of facial hair right. has some sort of role in, in the way that the holidays are celebrated. Sure. So there, there you go. Or maybe, you you just, uh, maybe you're just observing Movember. Perhaps, in which case, this is a great time to figure out that facial hair is a thing you want to have stick around. Because yeah. you've worked hard, and you deserve it. You went through that you went through that itchy phase, right? Yeah. And and if you're willing to tolerate the itchy phase, uh the, especially during the the cold dry winter, then uh you certainly deserve to uh you know, to see the 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 beard of your labor grow and be well well oiled, be extraordinarily well conditioned and sweet smelling. Sounds great. Perfumed. I agree perfumed hair so check out check out the uh the overthinking it gift guide if you happen to click through to one of those products on amazon and buy it we get a little kickback which is how we uh make a few bucks at the end of the year we uh it's been an important promotion for us uh, uh since we started really to to help keep the christmas lights on around this place and and uh we appreciate you checking it out overthinking it.com and click on the uh the gift guide at the top of the screen. I feel like we can say that it, it's uh, there. There were uh, earlier and earlier gift guides, like uh, two weeks ago. Even outlets were publishing them. Now there's this arms race because, like, there were this sort of best kept secret of online publishing that you could do this like affiliate marketing thing in the in the guise of content. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and then they were sort of, I feel like among the, the, the internet trenderati, um, at least some people that I follow, uh, and whose opinions. 
opinions I'm aware of. Like it was a uh, it was a thing that was looked down on as sort of a shameless cash grab, and then it was kind of back because we've all accepted that that publishing is dying and needs to to <laughs> do do something to keep the lights on other than being a publisher. And so you know, the New York Times buys Wirecutter for thirty million dollars or something like that, and all Wirecutter is is a set of uh, a set of product reviews, right? With affiliate links. And so that's I thought a, you were yeah. saying that they bought a set of wire cutters and I was like, man, I don't know. They're going to try to break into the New York Post and that's, steal the uh, uh, steal their copy of the Mona Lisa right. or something. That's, no, they yeah. they bought a set of wire cutters that were recommended on wirecutter.com and uh-huh. uh, and they realized, "Oh, this is a pretty good website. Let's spend 30 million dollars on it." <laughs> And spent thirty million dollars on a pair of wire cutters. That that would be overpaying for a, a pair of wire cutters. Um, yeah. So that's uh, you know. But uh, the but now I feel like it's okay. We've always published ours the Friday after Thanksgiving, and that's I feel like when it's okay for holiday music, holiday decorations, the uh, winter holidays. You know, Saturnalia. Uh, sure. And the Feast of Sol Invictus, the uh, Unconquered Sun, which evolved into the modern Christmas. Right. Right. Or at least had the date of the modern Christmas. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the that's the one. The the I mean, I guess there are three terms in in the British uh, the British school year, right? There's Michaelmas term, uh, then Christmas term, and Easter term, or is it something else? Term and Easter term. So you know, we're we're uh, we're just decentralizing the. Uh, Decentralizing the the uh, Christian tradition and and um, celebrating all of the things. It's a it's a gift guide for all for all um, all. Yep, winter. it works as a Diwali. If you're really really behind the eight ball, <laughs> it works as a belated Diwali gift guide as well. <laughs> so we are there for you. And you're in your time of what must be desperate need. <laughs> if you're like, oh no, I forgot to get Diwali presents. I, you know, I, I have a neighbor who uh, in my in my building who I'm friendly with who observes Diwali, and we were talking about it a couple weeks ago. And uh, yes, is, because it was a couple weeks ago. That, I'm not I'm not trivializing Diwali. No, I'm just no, 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 no. I'm saying that if you're very yeah. late. But what I was asking is, I, I didn't realize gift giving was a part of the was part of the thing. But I guess if you missed Diwali, you might feel guilty uh, right, th- that right, you right. missed it, and so you might give a like a, a guilt. Driven consolation gift, right. um, and if you celebrate Hanukkah, you might give a, a guilt-driven consolation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> zing! Um, let's uh, let's uh, let's talk turkey, Pete. Sure. You know, I uh, speaking. Of, yeah, exactly. Speaking of guilt and family and holidays, uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving. You know, sit, sit around. Um, the, uh, the you know I don't know did 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 you have traditional uh, Thanksgiving meals like Norman Rockwell style Thanksgiving meals or or do you have different traditions than the kind of the dominant uh, the dominant mode? Well, it's hard to it's always tricky to say Norman Norman Rockwell gets a lot of credit for being the origin point of the culture. Although I guess it's more of a nexus where you can everybody has sort of a vibe sense of what you're talking about. We have a pretty Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving in the sense that there is a curfew curf- uh, there is a turkey that is carved. There is a turkey that is tarved everyone. We are tarving the turkey. We are carving the turkey and I tend to be the bearer of knowledge of how to carve the turkey these days. This is because I've watched Alton Brown videos on YouTube, which is something anyone could do, but I'm the one who's done it. So, I, you know, my brother, we have Christmas, my brother-in-law in my sister's house, and, you know, it's his, it's, he's the sort of 
major domo of the turkey but i do i do conciliaire i do become a vizier of sorts for curvy, <laughs> uh, for curvy tarking does he of say various kinds does he say i'm the paterfamilias <laughs> so so here's the thing about turkey carving and i feel like this is kind of an illustrative concept in the culture as well is that there are two styles of turkey carving that i think of i'm sure there are more but there are two big styles of, of turkey carving or of turkey tarving if you want to call it that one is to do it at the table right to carve a table side and one of that is to do it back in the kitchen uh, or other work area and then bring it in and Based on where you do it, there are different methods that people use because the presentation is affected. And the idea – the real Norman Rockwell idea is to have a table-side turkey carving, and this is what's in the famous paintings uh, that you see where in that painting you make the anchor cut, right, which means you go in sideways at the base of the breast of the turkey, and then you do the vertical slices – across the turkey, and you watch the slices kind of fall off the side of the turkey, and this happens in front of everyone. And it has this, as you, you mentioned, Potter Familius, it has a patriarchal history to it. It's also kind of about the ritual of kind of, I'm providing for the family in front of the family. We're all kind of watching the bounty that's like manna from heaven falling off the turkey. We're kind of watching this in action. Uh, the downside of this kind of Kirky tarving is that it is not the most efficient or effective way uh, of getting the turkey out to people, and it also is not the optimal way to slice the fab fiber of the turkey. That would be to cut it kind of against the grain along the bias, which to do that, there's a method where you remove the breast, the lobe of the breast of the turkey, and then you cut it crossways. And you can present it on the tray like that. But doing this table side doesn't really work because it involves a lot of moving parts. And, yeah, and it doesn't two, have that. You need two, two surfaces, right? You need a yes. turkey stabilizing surface and then a kind of a carving receptacle, a separate cutting board kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it also requires, I mean, if you're deboning it, if you're deboning the thighs, if you're, if you're taking out the, if you're taking the turkey out at the knees for not paying its gambling debts, which is one of the things that you have to do in carving it, you don't want to do that in front of the family. You want to let the turkey have the dignity of having that done in private, but, but uh, or at least under cover of darkness. But, but the point is that when you have this food stuff, that this food, food stuff, all, all food is food stuff, I guess, in the modern uh, consumer age. But um, when you have this food, there's this food that is being provided to people, it's interesting to think of the different sort of symbolic or pageantry aspects of how the food is delivered. You know, when you get the food and it comes on your plate, the food in oftentimes has been transformed in ways to obscure where it comes from and, and to give a, an alternate narrative about what it is or where it comes from. This is particularly big with cheeseburgers is, is sort of the national epic of America with regards to this form of, of uh, cultural creation is, is the cheeseburger as a narrative object. But the, the turkey still bears a closer relationship in much of the culture between the fact that it was once a living bird. And I mean, we even have the president pardoning turkeys uh, as such and as a tradition, although I kind of expected him to execute them just in front of everybody. But that notwithstanding, just, just like, Oh my God. Yeah. Just totally Joffrey, Joffrey Baratheon <laughs> first of his name, you know, my, uh, you know, my, or, or, uh, right. When, when, um, uh, you know, uh, when Eric Trump accedes to the to the iron <laughs> the Iron House, right? My father told me to pardon this turkey, but <laughs> I'm going to kill it. 
you know. <laughs> Sir, mind, that's, that's a Joffrey impression. <laughs> Sir Ellen? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, so so I had I had two turkey. I had two Thanksgiving meals on Thanksgiving, same day, hundreds of miles apart. <laughs> one in New England and one down in New Jersey. And one we had turkey in the non-Norman Rockwell style of carving it backstage, and the other we had pork. In order to create uh, soft pork, so it had stuffing. So much, great, so yeah. much better. So much, like it's a, such a superior. Oh God, all pork is superior to all poultry. Well, there's a reason we only eat turkey on Thanksgiving, whereas <laughs> we eat pork all the time, right. and, and it's because poultry is is somewhat flavorless. I, have you ever brined a bird, Matt? Yes, I mean, I and I've also brined pork. Right, you know, it's Ooh. it's delicious. Yeah, it's so actually like if you ever have people know what we're talking about with regards to brining because brining the turkey is another sort of uh, it's another level of abstraction between the animal and the holy day of Thanksgiving, right? This highly symbolic, highly cultural day of Thanksgiving. Brining the bird seems to be a point of intermediation that sure. seems to be gaining in its ascendancy. Well, right, it's it's because like the thing that everyone has, you know, everyone reads serious eats now, right? Like nothing, nothing is a tradition anymore. Nothing belongs belongs to anyone anymore. We all read the same websites and we all do the thing. Like we all discovered what introverts were when BuzzFeed started writing articles about them. Suddenly everybody's an introvert now. Suddenly everybody needs to like go sit in their room by themselves, right? Like and read a book quietly after spending uh, time at a table with 20 people around the Thanksgiving table just because it's been a little overwhelming. Well, I've been doing that for almost 40 years and it's uh, like that's uh, I didn't do it because like i read a listicle right like 10 amazing (laughs) self i've got a game boy and a spot behind a banister that i've hidden in for a while in certain years long long time ago oh yeah uh, yeah oh absolutely and i'm not an introvert i'm a big extrovert but i do a lot of things and that but also that introverts and experts aren't a real thing but that's that's beside the point i don't believe in personality testing i don't but uh but at any rate well hold hold on okay well wait sorry let's uh it's become a a podcast about the myers (laughs) Briggs. Let's, oh no! Really? <laughs> no. I was looking forward to talking turkey. <laughs> well, I mean, was the turkey a sensate turkey, or was it a uh, a uh, uh, what's the opposite of that? I uh, a feel, a feeling turkey. No, it's th- feeling and thinking. Introvert, oh. extrovert. Uh, uh, judging and perceiving. Sensate and intuition. Is it an oh, intuitive right. turkey or a sensate turkey? And these are, by the way, these are like uh, sort of characteristics of people kind of binaries or, or continua, I guess it's more accurate to say, proposed by Carl Jung, uh, who, who thought that they were like deep and mysterious and it took a really long time to kind of get to know where anyone falls on this, uh, uh, on this sort of, uh, you know, continuum of, of self-identification and, and behavior, um, and, and preference. And then someone of course made a, made a, a little, uh, 10, 10 question inventory that tells you what it is and tells you what job you can have and and you uh you get uh you get a consultant who comes in and does a day-long offsite and that'll be thirty thousand dollars thank you um anyway thanksgiving uh i i just i want to propose an intermediate way of uh especially if you have a big thanksgiving if you have a big table with you know let, i'm gonna say like greater than a dozen people right Mm-hmm. You know, to to the point where you have to like either you you 
have designed your house around this and you have a, like a big long table and a big long dining room somewhere or else you have like all the TV trays all the uh, you know all the, the chairs a kids table uh, in, in my mom's house we, we did as many as like 35 I think once and, and like the kids sat at the coffee sat on the, the little kids sat on the ground around the coffee table uh, by the couch and like people were perched on the little ledge in front of the fireplace like we you know we did this it's impossible to carve enough turkey uh for everybody there right in in any sort of reasonable time because it's a, it's a time consuming process so um so what you do uh you have a small turkey and a big turkey big turkey you carve well before anyone even shows up just keep it warm and moist uh in a low oven right mm-hmm. then the small turkey is the one you trot out you show to everybody and you can like take the leg take a couple legs off of it or whatever uh cuz that's that's easy you can cut the leg and then uh dis, dis, uh, dislodge the thigh and then you know i don't know maybe chop up some of that some of that dark meat there and add it to the uh add it to the pie in the kitchen but you have a display turkey but then you have your whole platter of of turkey ready ready to go um but brining the turkey brining meats yeah brining meats in particular right like this is uh so so the overthinking it life hack of the week (laughs) (laughs) right we're bringing this back this thing that never existed (laughs) pro tip Yep. Is that you what you gotta do with any kind of cut of meat that is uh that is not completely marbled with fat, right? So you don't have to do it to pork shoulder. You don't have to do it to it's called butt, but it's not butt, it's shoulder, right? Pork right. butt. Uh you don't have to do it to ribs, you don't have to do it to well marbled uh actually most cuts of beef, um, because the really lean cuts of beef, you're probably going to cook really low and slow anyway. But if you're going to roast, if you're going to like do a uh, a non-moist cooking method, like roasting in an oven or uh, cooking pork chops on a grill or something like that, to a cut of meat that is not uh, kind of marbled through with intramuscular fat – you're going to have a problem because it's going to be as tough as shoe leather. So you have to introduce moisture to uh, you have to introduce moisture to that big muscle. Um, and then the other thing you should do is introduce salt because salt is delicious. It also helps with uh, you know with the salt sucks up uh, sucks up moisture. So what what you can do if you have like a pork loin or even I've done this to pork chops or more to the point for Thanksgiving, a turkey, like a large bird, uh, though you need a large receptacle to do this in, you need perhaps a Yeti cooler off yet last year's overthinking it gift guide, uh, is to create a saline solution that is, um, oh, I have to Google for what exactly the, there is a, there is an ideal salinity by weight of, uh, salt. And, uh, by the way, not just salt, add sugar and then add, um, various kinds of aromatics. Add, you know, if you're doing a turkey, you probably want to add maybe some thyme, some bay leaf, some, uh, uh, peppercorns, garlic, depending on how, how you feel. Maybe a little acid, like squeeze up a couple lemons in there, depending on, depending on how you feel, uh, about that kind of thing thing um that the uh you want to do all that uh and put that into a uh into a brine now there there are some food safety things so look up a good way to do this on the internet before you uh before you just go do this and then you um you you soak the meat in that like overnight 
you know, for several hours to overnight before you, uh, before you do it. And the meat gets all soaks up all of that, uh, salty goodness, um, before it, uh, uh, you know, before you put it in, in the oven and is more moist and more, um, more moist and, and, uh, more salty, more savory, uh, for, for your having done this. Now it's, it's to the point where if you buy a, uh, like an industrial Turkey, uh, at a, at a supermarket, it's probably already been injected with saline. It's probably already been plumped up with, uh, with saline. But if you buy an artisanal heritage breed of Turkey, uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it is a good thing to introduce the, uh, introduce a little more flavor. Cause like at, at, at every step, the secret of cooking, right? Is that at every step you can either, you, you can either add flavor or else you're doing it wrong. Right, like there are two ways to cook. It's it's everything adds flavor, or or you're doing it wrong. Uh, mm. You know, if you boil the water and don't add salt before the pasta, you know what what kind of an animal are you? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting when you're. That's a really interesting question. Uh, the thing you brought up here, not a question, but an idea you brought up. When I'm thinking about culture and I'm thinking about Thanksgiving, one thing I don't think about is flavor. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because it's a it's a harvest festival. Nominally, it's a harvest festival, and it's a festival of kind of survival. It's a festival where you've you've made it through another year. Uh, we like to we like to associate it with this old myth of the pilgrims and the Indians because it gives it a certain sort of sort of historical currency, which is mostly manufactured. <laughs> and but really, what it is is it's a long tradition of being like, well, we made it, we survived another year. Let's eat some food and, and celebrate that we have food to eat. Uh, it's sort of a self creating holiday because if you don't have food to eat, then you have nothing to celebrate, and thus you don't have to worry about not having a turkey. But um, but uh, more so even than it being strictly about Thanksgiving, it's about survival and sustenance and food as something that keeps you going and brings you together, but not something you enjoy, which is interesting, I think. When you think about the kind of – because there's other sorts of representations of food that to me feel Thanksgiving-ish in certain dimensions, and I think one of those aspects is that flavor isn't really a factor, that the food represents its ability to kind of nurture, but not its ability to uh, create a sensory experience. I don't know. I was thinking about, in particular, I was thinking about Snow White (laughs) and uh, and like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and like the apple that Snow White eats that that she gets from the Wicked Step, from the Wicked Queen, who I don't think is real, is the Wicked Queen related to Snow White by blood? That's, that's something I would need to uh, gloss on. Do you no, know that I, off the top of your head? I, no, I thought it was a stepmother. Stepmother. Okay, yes. They're related not by blood, but they're in the same family. Yeah. Uh, right? Is that the idea? And yeah. So, like, same same domestic uh, domestic circle, right? Yeah. There's That's a great way of putting it, is that the, the Snow White and the Queen are, even, even though they're not friends, they're in the same domestic circle, which is maybe part of why I was thinking about this in the context of, of everybody getting together for Thanksgiving, because you don't have the same sort of personal relationship with everybody, but you do share food. And in the sharing of food, there is there is cultural signaling about like what your relationship is like. And it occurs to me that when I think about Snow White eating the apple, and again, I'm not saying that everybody's Thanksgiving is a horrible coma-inducing act of vengeance and jealousy. Um, not all the time, anyway. Uh, but uh, but like I don't necessarily think that she eats it because it's going to be delicious. Right, because it's going to be. I mean, yes, it sort of symbolizes. It has kind of like a sexual or indulgent or sensual aspect. In in the abstract, but when I think about Snow White and the apple, I think about it being like shiny, and I think about it being like given to her, and I think about it being big and round, right? 
Um, not necessarily about it being tasty. Like, like Snow White never comes out of the coma and is like, you know what I really want is another bite of that apple. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like, yeah. like it, it's, it's never like going back for the flavor. And, and, and I mean, that's just, that's just sort of because we're a pop culture podcast. I'm thinking about kind of like cultural examples of eating and food between family members that have this sort of weird aspect. Because for other holidays, you know, you pick foods that you like. And it's not that you don't like Thanksgiving food. But it's sort of like you'll eat it whether you like it or not. You know, like you'll often have kind of like half on your plate that you're excited about and half of your plate you're kind of not excited about if you eat a conventional Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving dinner. We've already discussed how turkey is not the sort of most culinarily exciting of proteins, and yet it's one that people spend a lot of money and time on because it's so symbolic. Um, I don't know. Can you get any other food that really resonates for you or any ideas about flavor that come to mind for you in thinking about this holiday? Well, it, you know, my – I, I don't know. I, you know, you, you, one doesn't want to rag on one's family, and yet no, one, no, no, no. I don't. One, I'm not here to. One spends. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I'm here to share the experience. Oh yeah, no. Being difficult. I fear. So. I, I hear you, Pete. I'm here to bury my family, not to praise them. But the, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, undermatched potatoes that are delicious, <laughs> and a big blanket on the couch watching football. I have a. Uh, uh, I have like one good like Thanksgiving food memory. Right. Okay. And that's, and that, you know, it's cause like cooking was not really a thing in, in my life until, I mean, my, my mother, my mother viewed it as a sort of obligation, which she discharged, uh, admirably, you know, uh, as a single mom raising, raising two boys and, and, uh, you know, keeping us well fed and, and all that. Like it's, it's, it was, uh, an amazing, uh, an amazing, um, performance of a very tough job. Uh, but, um, she didn't view food as a, as like a, a vector for pleasure or as a vector for like self-expression, you know, right. in the, in the way right. that, a, that I have kind of come to see it as, as both, right? Like you kind of cook things and you, you are expressing something about yourself. Like you're being creative or you're, or you're like just performing something, showing, showing off a kind of technical excellence or something like that. Right. Like there's a, um, there's a sort of performative quality about it. And then like, also like you cook things that, that you like to eat now. Uh, so, so there were a lot of kind of like perfunctory, uh, processed foods that were a part of my holiday meal life, um, for all of my childhood and into, into early adulthood. Um, but you know, canned green beans and thing and, and things like this. Um, but the thing that I remember that I loved, the thing that just said, this is the holidays for me was the baked marshmallows on top of the yams, right? Like, uh, you make a dish of mashed sweet potatoes of, mm-hmm. of yams that are all, you know, that are all whipped up with butter. And, and I mean, in my family, probably some sort of like hydrogenated margarine, uh, sort of thing, because that's healthier. Right. Um, you know, God bless the eighties. Yeah, really. <laughs> not not at all salted because that's going to kill us. Uh, and the um, you know, uh, but on on top of that, in the like the 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 Corningware casserole dish um, that does that that whole thing uh, that that you know houses this this assemblage this uh, you know uh, mush of of mash. Um, you you line up 
beautiful uh, jet puffed marshmallows in just a fantastic uh, beautiful like a like a like in uh, the the detail uh, in large detail of a, a kernel of corn or something like that with all the all the beautiful little pearly marshmallows li- lined up and then you bake that so that the marshmallows melt a little bit and toast and then if you're me and you're early in the line you skim off the top, the marshmallow crust, right? And just put that, as much of that as you feel like you can get, a, get away with onto your plate uh, and, and, you know, abscond with it uh, as quickly as possible with none of the, the yams, which taste awful because they have, are, they're unseasoned and, and are full of, you know, hydrogenated vegetable oil. Uh, and, uh, and you just like go off in, into a corner and just bliss out on your s'more like uh, goodness. Oh, man. Man, that like uh, you know that like there, that's a whole complicated ritual, right? Of of foods that I probably couldn't eat any other time of the year, and how I interacted with them, and they they signaled um, they signaled Thanksgiving, they signaled holiday, right? Uh, for me, and there yeah. was something that I legitimately looked forward to the experience of, um, because to me, marshmallow is perhaps the perfect candy. Man, I have. I also feel really strongly about these sweet potatoes with marshmallows on them, and I've, I wonder whether they're one of the more narratively compelling Thanksgiving foods. There's so much story in a, in a sweet potato because it's a sweet potato has a beginning, a middle, and an end, right? Because it sort of starts in the conception of it. It sort of starts with the notion. Temporal, in terms of temporal reading, Stanley Fish style, you start with it being sweet, and then it becomes a potato, and then it becomes a sweet potato. And there's this sort of arc of following through what's going on. It's like it's sweet, but it's like a potato, but it's orange, and, and <laughs> so it kind of builds. Yam is is the is such a brutalist take on sweet potato because <laughs> it's just one word, right? But it also is the name of God. I am that is what is called I am, and it's also Popeye's professional of spiritual strength you know i am what i am and that's what i am and so there's the yam which is has unity and power and then there's sweet potato which has melody and and arc and movement and then there's marshmallow which is in this wonderfully bizarre cultural space where like it makes me think of early nutritional theory, right? Isn't like one of the – and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the early discoveries that's been really influential on modern theories of nutrition was the attempt in the British Army to use gelatin as a cheap food source for soldiers and discovering that it had no nutritional value, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like why can't we just use gelatin? We'll make jello and we'll give – the soldiers jello and then they'll live on that and it'll be super cheap and it's like actually we've discovered that you die <laughs> like that it doesn't work ironically i mean ironically like urban hipsters pay like six dollars a cup for bone broth yeah. right <laughs> which is basically liquid jello it's savory liquid jello right like because what it is you know do you know you know what bone broth is pete right it's it's broth made from bones yeah. also right, known right, as right. broth but it's yeah. you know maybe it's made from more bones or it's simmered it's a little it's a little thicker but the thing about broth the thing about that gives stock uh its mouthfeel is that you boil a lot of bones or a lot of uh parts of an animal carcass that have connective tissue in them and the collagen in the connective tissue gelatinizes uh, 
uh, and gives it that sort of that beautiful, unctuous mouthfeel that a lot of great chicken soups have, even if they're not thickened with something like flour or, you know, uh, other thickeners, uh, arrowroot or something like that, right? Like you, you can still get this beautiful, heavy, uh, uh, you know, unctuousness, um, in broth because it's it's essentially jello right it's uh yeah and i always liked my favorite stage of jello was always the warm jello right was always the warm sugary i'm like a i'm like a uh a, a strong misreader of dessert <laughs> you know like uh i just want the i want the the things but not in any of the forms that they're that they're supposed to be uh they're supposed to be in now i thought when you were going to say uh early theories of medicine we were going to go back to like the four humors right and like no, uh, like... <laughs> no the stuff that came after that and i think it actually might have been the english who patented the manufacturer of gelatin and the french who explored its nutritional qualities because i think the english might have initially used it as a glue <laughs> but feel free to have this conversation in the comments as we learn more. But the idea that, that gelatin is sort of a, a chemical of interest to early nutritionists and is, is now a – and gelatin-related foodstuffs are now a product of no nutritional interest. And their whole point is to be anti-nutritional and, and, and aesthetic and textural and to be sugared so that they carry forward this uh, the sweetness without the additional substance uh, and, and all this on top of this starchy vegetable as well. It was the kind of thing where I think we were having Thanksgiving with another family, and the other family brought it. And then the next year, we didn't have Thanksgiving with that family, and we didn't have it, and I got upset. I was like a child. And, and I was like, oh, no, what happened to the sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top? I really loved that. And it was like, I've never made that before, Peter. I, I don't know. But my mom made it the, the following year and continues to make it. Uh, because you know, because I, that's the other thing is that like – in my family, I think there's a stri- there's a, a drive towards perfectibility in Thanksgiving, which is ultimately tragic and impossible. <laughs> but the idea that you like remember everything that everybody always wanted and try to make the things that everybody always wanted, uh, which which sort of uh, has a notion about the mutability of human nature that's like beautiful but not accurate. <laughs> this idea that like if you just sort of pay attention to people and correct and correct and correct, you'll eventually arrive at what's perfect and right. With and maybe that's sort of the idea. What was it uh, to turn, turn to be to be our delight till by turning, turning we turn out right? Yeah, is is the uh, the idea which relates something somewhat to Thanksgiving and that particular breed of of uh, agricultural Americana. It's associated with kind of early colonial cultures, but. Uh, but yeah, geez, it's just—it's really loaded. It's loaded with marshmallows and and subtext. That particular <laughs> food stuff. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like almost—it's almost definitional about the holidays. Like I, I you know, I have a. Uh, um, I mean, I you know, I, I'm not. D- sort of particularly squeamish about saying my family puts the fun in dysfunctional and we uh th- though i i don't think we're supposed to say dysfunctional anymore i i think there are some more non-normative terms that we can use about that but we you know god we had fun um and uh i feel like the uh i feel like the the my experience of the holidays almost to the point where it's my definition is that they're miserable because um the the whole point of them is that there is this kind of idealized vision that no no instance can actually ever live up to right like no no you can never do you can never do thanksgiving or christmas right 
quote unquote, because one of the the definitional things about them is that you can't do them right. Is that they, that you don't uh, 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 that that they are that they are an ideal that they are a sort right. of mirage that is kind of ever receding behind the horizon, no matter you know how far you stretch out your 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 uh, fingers in order to to reach it. Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Or what's a turkey for? <laughs> yeah, like, well, I mean, this is a uh, Christmas in particular is built around the idea of this guy completing this absolutely impossible task. <laughs> and, and God love him for doing it every year, which I really appreciate whenever I, whenever Santa Claus has eaten his milk and cookies and he leaves behind his wonderful presents. I mean, science can't explain it. So what I'm saying is scientists, get yourselves together and figure out a new heuristic. <laughs> because if you can't explain Santa, then what good are you? Uh, but, um, but, yeah, but there isn't – and again, this isn't universal. I think we're talking about a feeling about these holidays that is probably in your culture and family culture and my culture and family culture. Probably pretty common, probably not universal. I wonder if it's also related to something that – it's a different problem when you're a child than when you're an adult, I think. Partially because part of being a happy adult is coming to terms with the your idea of how the world is based on your own experience and kind of how you want to shape your own identity or, or even even not how you want to shape it, but, but how it has come to be shaped both by your own actions and the actions of others and, and kind of relating yourself and the world and your knowledge of them and your experience with them in some manner of harmonious way that becomes kind of tolerable. Uh, and in there is some sort of sublime beauty or wisdom potentially in this idea of, like, yeah, the world's not perfect, but there are things about it that are good or bad or what have you, but I relate to it in a certain way. And the way that the holidays are performed, like particularly and specifically Thanksgiving and Christmas. And and I don't even mean, I don't even know about stuff like Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Diwali. I don't know if they fall under the same sort of pressure as, as Christmas particularly falls under. If anything, there's the anxiety of being related to Christmas, which is an entirely different form of, of dissatisfaction. Although maybe not entirely different, maybe somewhat similar. Maybe everything is sort of related to Specifically, like this idea of the perfect Christmas, this idea of the perfect Thanksgiving, and that part of the problem of it is not just that it is unattainable, but that it shoo- it, it nudges out your own idea and state of comfort if it exists with regards to what is attainable or what is not attainable, right? Like what is possible or what is not possible. And that in and of itself is, uh, it can be something that raises your anxiety levels or makes you depressed or otherwise depletes your resources for dealing with nonsense that, and also you have to sit in a car for like 10 hours, which totally (laughs) blows, but, uh, or an airplane for 12 or a train for 15 or a bus, you know, halfway back and forth to the epiphany. But, uh, um, I mean, all I'm saying is that the the if only we all had a reindeer with a red nose to lead us through the snows and fog, then we would all have the perfect Christmas. But as long as we don't, we have to deal with something lesser that becomes somewhat intolerable for a variety of reasons. I mean, even the story of Rudolph, right? Like, is a mm. story is a story of kind of being ostracized, and you know what I mean? Like the kind of the the society not quite working out in the way that in the way that it ought to, you know. 
Here, here's the interesting thing about Rudolph. Here, here's, and there's a lot of interesting things about Rudolph, and I don't want to jump the gun. Here's the thing. You feel like you're having a Thanksgiving podcast, and all of a sudden it becomes a Christmas podcast. I mean, was it have to, does the Christmas podcast have to start so early every year? <laughs> but here's the thing about Rudolph, is that Rudolph wants to play reindeer games. And it is, and presumably the reindeer games are things like cribbage or pinochle or baccarat, perhaps <laughs> old people card games. No, the reindeer games are various forms of horseplay, I suspect, uh, because they are played by the other reindeer. Rudolph wants to join in. Rudolph is pre- prevented from joining into them, and this is this is bad. So it's bad that Rudolph wants. It's bad. Okay, it's bad that Rudolph is denied the opportunity to play the reindeer games. And yet, when I say reindeer games, I don't think of a positive thing. I think of the Ben Affleck film, but I think of of some manner of mean spirited horseplay, or sort of like like sort of pointless or ultimately fruitless kind of uh, status play among among mean spirited children. When I think of reindeer games, and I think it carries that sort of sense because of its association with Rudolph. But then that also becomes somewhat cyclical because Rudolph not being allowed to play the reindeer games is bad, but the reindeer games themselves are also bad. And Rudolph's kind of apotheosis and success come not from his ability. To to become included in the reindeer games. It doesn't end with like, and then Rudolph got to go play, you know, Red Butt, where they threw the ball against the wall and hit each other with it. Like, no, <laughs> right? Like, uh, do you ever play is Red Butt Wall Ball some variation of the of the of the sort? I think we you called it we called it Butts Up. Yeah, there you go. Where for those of you who are unfamiliar, I don't know if people do, do this anymore or not. It's a game that would involve throwing a ball against the wall, and if you in some manner fail, like touch the ball or something uh, and drop it, you have to run to the wall and touch the wall. And various conditions of failure are punished by having you stand up against the wall and being pelted in the rear with the ball by others. Uh, this I would this I would describe as a reindeer game. But Rudolph's success, <laughs> Rudolph's success is not uh, does not mean that he gets to play the reindeer games. Rudolph's success is all the reindeer loved him and they and they acclaim him to the heavens. Right? It's like they shouted out with glee, "You'll go down in history." So it's like Rudolph's Rudolph's reward is immortality in death. I guess, but not participation in society. So there's definitely something going on there, I think, with Rudolph and the kind of the fact that what Rudolph wants is never not going to be what Rudolph gets. But what Rudolph gets is this sort of ascendant state of perfection that's separate from what his life was like before. And by the end of the story, we all forget what Rudolph wanted in the first place, which was to play Red Butt. Right. So Red Nose, I guess, is what it's called when they hit you in the face. Maybe that's why Rudolph's nose is red. It's because he got hit in the face with a baseball or something of that matter. Probably not. It's probably a light. Uh, a little, a little glow light. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah the, exactly right. Like the, the, the. It's a sort of beatitude, right? Appropriate for a for a, quish, a Christian holiday, right? Like uh, blessed are the blessed are the reindeer who are excluded from red butt, uh, for they shall be red in the nose. You know? <laughs> <laughs> which is not not exactly what I was asking for, right? Like right. that was right. that wasn't the original success condition. Uh, it's a it's a whole. Uh, it, I don't know. It's a whole other it's a whole other kind of thing we haven't even talked about dessert uh i mean i feel like dessert is a whole other uh thing are there traditional desserts in your um in your thanksgiving practice praxis practice in your techne i I like how thanksgiving practice and thanksgiving praxis 
I think what mean the same thing but feel totally different right. because of the shades of meaning of the two words. Because I think of praxis and I think of chess praxis by Aaron Nimzovich uh, and his sort of like uh, systems and uh, of hypermodernism and and this notion of kind of systematizing thinking through testing and rational more testing more reason than than testing. But anyway. So yes, the answer the answer to your question is yes, we have traditional desserts and they are also uh, engaged with this narrative of perfectibility, which is that there is one dessert which is actually perfect, which is an apple apple crumb apple pie, which is just absolutely delicious. Uh, my my mother has made it, my sisters have made it. I think my sister my, one of my sisters is the sort of uh, chief of the apple pie and made an absolutely delicious apple pie this year, generally served with ice cream. Uh, but oh yeah, because but, again, because we're not animals, right? Like apple pie, you get vanilla ice cream on, and and yeah. any other, any other way is incorrect. <laughs> um, but they they also make a pumpkin pie because I like pumpkin pie, and I don't get to have pumpkin pie except any other time than Thanksgiving, and also because I'm allergic to apples. Uh, but which is kind of a factor, which is that I'm allergic to apples, but I'm not allergic to apples when they're cooked, but they have to be sufficiently cooked. And so there's always a risk. And sometimes I want to roll the dice and sometimes I don't. Consider it a reindeer game. Sometimes I want to <laughs> eat the food. And it's not like it's going to kill me. It'll just make my throat itch. It'll make my gums swell. I might bleed. I might vomit. These are not things you want to do on the holidays more than you're already doing. Right. So, so, so the combination, and it sort of predates the development of my allergy, but the development of my allergy has kind of coincided with it. My family makes both an apple pie and a pumpkin pie. Uh, and there is the, the demand for the pumpkin pie is nigh non-existent. Almost nobody wants it, but they still make it. And there's this real uh, yearning and love, I think, in that act, which I appreciate and really much value, uh, but also kind of find to have this sort of note of tragedy in it because it's this whole idea of like, don't you want to make something to make everybody happy? Can't we just make something to make everybody happy? Uh, can't we just make it all perfect? And I sort of think, well, it's kind of a waste to make this pie that only I eat, but at the same time, can't I? You know, this, this is the pie that I like, and, and so I don't feel comfortable with being the only person to enjoy it because it's supposed to be shared. But at the same time, the labor and product that went into it is being shared with me, and so there is a sharing that's going on. So there's a real cyclicality and sublimity to it. Uh, at my first Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving lunch, there was lemon uh, lemon roll, which was delicious and also has this kind of holiday quality to it that I wouldn't have at other times of the year. Uh, and uh, that was my fiance's mom who made oh. lemon. Um, and that is not at all a traditional Thanksgiving meal for my family, but it feels like a Thanksgiving holiday food uh, in general. So, so there's this idea of engaging with your traditional foods versus traditional foods in general that I think kind of falls into dessert. But Matt, let me ask you: What about your traditional dessert? Well, yeah, no, the 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 pies are you know the pies and yeah. like the that well. So there are there are two like there are two modes of this. One is um, a, again cooking, not really a source of pleasure or self expression. So uh, there there were. Um, particular roles that the various uh, participants in the kind no, of roles come earlier. Roles are <laughs> roles are necessary. There were delicious. There were, there were particular roles. Actually, yeah. the roles are the roles are a different thing, right? Like roles uh, came from a particular supermarket, and it was a particular brand of of dinner roll. Oh yeah, right. Yup, like, yup, And yep. then the pies came from a particular fancy bakery, uh, French yep. bakery in our case, and it was a particular pie. So, like my my point was there. Think are two- how lucky we are in this, man. This is so nice. 
<laughs> this is so and yet it's so stressful but it's so nice oh it's yeah like, it's oh, really yeah. nice I'm thankful for all of this wonderful food and for the labor of all of the people who brought it to the table. I'm thankful to live in a world where I am free from want and can enjoy a meal like this with family. Amen. And also thank God for fast cars. Oh, yes. Man, oh, it's great. I don't don't have friends. I have turkey. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't a very good Vin Diesel. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for, about that. But no, my, my point is there are two modes. Like one is the uh, there are two modes of potluck. There is the the purchased potluck and there is the homemade potluck. And so, you know, as, as you can imagine, in my early life, um, it was purchased potluck and I've sort of transitioned to a more uh, artisanal um you know, uh, uh, handmade bespoke, uh, type of, type of potluck. But, but I was thinking about your family and the, the apple pie that's made, the pumpkin pie that's made. I actually, I started making, uh, started making my own pumpkin pie using non grain, uh, crusts when I was, um, a more doctrinaire paleo diet eater. Uh, not that, not that this was healthy by any stretch of the imagination, but there is research that seems to indicate that even in arbitrary restriction in food like i don't eat food that is blue right will actually cause you to lose weight because it increases your consciousness of uh, of what you're eating i want to do i want to reduce the use of the letter r in the foods i eat by 40 percent would actually cause you to lose weight because it would cause you to track what you're eating and be aware of it less yeah less turkey <laughs> Pokey. <laughs> Let's pork. No burgers. Burgers. Oh, it's the saddest one. It's the worst timeline. <laughs> Or or you just drink you just eat everything British right because they don't pronounce burgers all. <laughs> burgers yes hamburgers from <laughs> Hamburg um, the the um, the cooking is an interesting thing, especially when there is like, I think there's this thing that, that kind of coalesces around like a particular family recipe from, you know, like grandma's X, Y, or Z, right? Grandma's sure. apple pie. I don't know if in your family it's grandma's apple pie, but you can imagine there is a canonical, there is an, a, a, a platonic form of grandma with a pl- platonic form of grandma's apple pie, right? And that this is like, that this is a, a big thing to jockey around it's a great great uh cause of strife and and uh hurt feelings and families like who gets to know the recipe for grandma's apple pie like to whom is it passed down to whom is it entrusted it's a it's a kind of a legacy and a uh not a patrimony necessarily because we're talking about a, a perhaps a matrilineal um you know, sort of legacy, but, but, uh, uh, matrimony, though that's a different thing. Uh, the, uh, yeah, matrimony can, can, can do it. If the in-laws are on the outs, uh, if the in-laws are outlaws, then, uh, nobody wants to, uh, pass down the, the family recipes. And especially when it's kind of encoded on some, like, sacred instrument, like a, a, a grease stained piece of notebook paper from, you know, 1874 or something like that, right? <laughs> that has been, you know, that has been like folded up in the same envelope and handed down generation to generation to generation um, for all of for all of history. So it's I mean, there is there is a particular there is a particular thing. Right. Um, 
It's it's funny. It's actually anti-Platonic because uh, mm. Pla- Plato's idea, the moral, the kind of the moral judgment that went along with the forms, or the moral uh, claim that went along with the forms, is that the forms are better than the instances because they are singular, whereas the instances are many. They're eternal, whereas the uh, uh, instances are are temporal. Um, you know, and and uh, and so on. There's there's a kind of philosophical purity to the forms that you don't get in the messy in the messy real world. But it's not just an apple pie that you want, right? You want that apple pie, you know? Um, and that, like, that there is a, a, a really particular character to that. Like, are you making that uh, apple pie? In my family, it's a, it's a German green bean dish that comes from my mother's mother's mother, you know, uh, that involves, like, canned green beans and white vinegar. Like, I ought to hate it, but I love it because it's, uh, you know, it's the thing. It's those green beans. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a signifier as much as it is a, a, a food stuff. Um, and, boy, do I stuff, uh, I stuff myself with them. Um, and that, uh, that, like, I want those. I don't want, like, a green bean casserole. I want those green beans. I don't want just a pumpkin pie. I want that that pumpkin pie you know and that that like uh that with if you're not and actually even like even in you know the the slightly debased form that we practiced uh, in my own childhood right it's not just a pie from like a store from like denny's or something or denny's doesn't sell pies from marie calendar or uh you know a, a a diner type restaurant that that sells pies it's um it's you know it's the pie from the uh you know from the french bakery from paris pastry or whatever you know whatever um it's that that stores pie and that like this confers on it uh a kind of a significance a kind of consonance uh with with you know, with expectation that I think is related to uh, related to some of the things that we're talking about um, about about the holidays, right? Yeah, it's interesting to think about it because I think this this narrative you're discussing does run somewhat counter to the narrative we've been discussing previously about the holiday having really a pl- more platonic notion that there is a, a platonic notion associated with with Thanksgiving, with Christmas, those two big holidays, with certain other holidays to a greater or lesser degree. In that the the the, the form precedes the incidents, right? The the idea of having a Christmas or the best Christmas ever precedes the actual experience of any sort of Christmas. And exist in this sort of notional space where it is eternal and it is more perfect than any manifestation of it you might bring into the world. And yet at the same time, there's this idea that you've described as non-platonic of kind of reproducing and remembering a specific instance a thing a thing that kind of comes back around and that is it has stewards and is kind of given life to and that kind of depends upon the instancing for its existence like if you if you were to not make the green bean casserole then and the green bean casserole were not to be present then it is not like the green bean casserole would exist notionally I would assume, and that was how it would be with the apple pie. If it were not there, it would be as if it had been ripped out of the mind as well as of the body, as out of, as well as out of the ice cream. <laughs> that that its its failure to be present is a is, is it, it it being present is a necessary condition for its existence as an idea. Yeah, it has to be present at the holidays, it's, and it's, that is it's, part uh, of how it is thought of. It's inductive, right? Right. Okay. Great. 
And that rather than deductive, rather than proceeding from first principles, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, two points define a line, three points define a plane. uh, You have to brine the turkey. I think that's like the the fourth uh, corollary of, uh, you know, I don't know, um, of Euclidean geometry is, uh, you know, cook cook the turkey in a... a, Oh, 5%, by the way, 5%... By weight, brine. Uh, I'll, I'll put a uh, I'll put a link to uh, to an article about brine into the into the show notes. If you have a liter of water, which weighs a kilogram, you want fifty grams of uh, you want fifty grams of salt. And then um, you know uh, maybe not for turkey, but for uh, for pork, definitely add an equal weight of sugar. And then you can put in different kind of flavoring things. Maybe cinnamon. I don't know. Maybe that would be good. You know, maybe allspice. Just, just right. Yeah. Just drop a couple of, uh, you know. Uh, but if you're going to, well, yeah, and 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 look, you know, sort of research the food safety implications of this. That's the only thing I have to say about about uh, making a brine. Um, but the, the the it's inductive rather than being deduced from first principles. It's a uh, it is a principle that kind of arises from um right like uh uh that that arises from instances right there are two ways to know that that the angles in a triangle add up to 180 degrees uh one is one is to you know prove it mathematically um from you know abstract some sort of abstract uh uh uh, for first principles that you know to be true, some sort of um, uh, some sort of laws, right, uh, or assumptions. And uh, the other way is to go out and measure enough triangles until you're pretty confident that uh, there isn't going to be a kind of triangle that you haven't seen, and then like uh, you realize that all the triangles have 180 degrees in them. So, uh, so this is a this is a kind of inductive model of. Um, uh, inductive model of how how these ideas how these ideas come about and sort of thumbing its nose at at, at Plato in that that sense mm. right yeah and historically I've often preferred specifically this sort of tradition in the context of an what I would describe as an optional holiday rather than a mandatory holiday and this is a, a complex this is a complex taxonomy uh, that I won't necessarily get into but a, a a mandatory holiday versus an optional holiday is it doesn't mean that the mandatory holiday necessarily always happens and the optional holiday sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. But it has to do with the nature of the obligations that you have and in particularly the kind of performative obligations you have for how to celebrate the holiday in the context of what role the holiday has during the year. And the big example is that Christmas is a mandatory holiday. St. Patrick's Day is an optional holiday. Sure. And that it might always happen, but there are a variety of different ways to celebrate it. Now, for you, for some people, St. Patrick's Day is a mandatory holiday and that they have to go get get drunk in a very specific manner, go to a very specific parade. But for me, St. Patrick's Day was always a little bit more open-ended, but it featured one of my family's favorite uh, non-platonic inductive traditions, which is my grandparents' soda bread. Because uh, you know, my family is mostly Irish. Fenzel is an Irish. Fenzel is German, but uh, I'm also a Finneran. I'm also a Quinn. I'm also an Abbot. Like I'm related to all these other uh, Curtin, all these other Irish names. Um, and and so we had the soda bread. That was this sort of big family tradition that I love. And you know, so for example, one time I went to I went home for uh, St. Patrick's Day. Because I wanted to be with my family because I liked eating corned beef and cabbage and listening to Irish music and eating this wonderful Irish soda bread. And I brought the Irish soda bread back with me to New York City that night because I was supposed to meet with some friends out in the town. And uh, overthinkers, actually. Belinky was the mastermind of the goings out. I believe Jordan was there as well. And uh, 
and I went to go meet them, and they were not in a bar that was St. Patrick's Day-ish at all. It was like a Canal Street bar in Chinatown. But I brought the soda bread with me, and the there was some – quality of the soda bread and i can't really call it a numinal or platonic quality <laughs> because you're right it's like an inductive quality it's it's a it's not something where the in, the instance of the soda bread is what made it special not the sort of notional abstract that precedes the instance of the soda bread right it's not like uh you know it's christmas and there's no milk and cookies for santa and then suddenly you know there's a the this Somebody shows up, you know, a relative you didn't think was going to show up shows up and has the milk and cookies, and, and sort of all is right with the world. The the preceding rightness that is required has been fulfilled and restored. No, it's the idea that this non-platonic inductive tradition, which has this holiday-making quality as a symbolic foodstuff, enters into a non-St. Patrick's Day world and makes it a St. Patrick's Day world. Huh. And and it is interesting to think of how in Thanksgiving. I feel like you. There is hope for Thanksgiving. You don't. You don't always have to stress about it. And I'm sure a lot of people, again, stress whatever. We don't want to. We don't want to make it too normative. But um, you don't have to. You can feel good about it. And I do enjoy it. But this, the pressure, the Seneca would object to tremendously. <laughs> just this, the cart just dragging the dog through the street, to use the Stoic metaphor of how to be happy in a in a world that's unpredictable and has bad things going on. He, he would always talk about like the dog, kind of like you can be the dog being dragged by the cart, or you can be the dog kind of like trotting alongside the cart. And you're going to be happier if you trot alongside the cart than if you're dragged by it. But you should get it out of your head that you're going to, as the dog, change the direction of the cart. Um, but but get. Getting, getting away from that and getting more towards like, oh, you know, this is the turkey brining that I really like to do, or this is the stuffing that I really love, or this is the pie that I really love, and, and uh, you know, let's let's use these traditions as the center of gravity for an inductive, non-platonic celebration of being together. Maybe that's a big part of the problem with harvest festivals. To bring it kind of full circle. Yeah. The problem with harvest festivals is that they celebrate something that doesn't necessarily always happen. And yet the way that they've been interpreted, I think, nowadays, even when they don't happen, they still happen. Even when you don't have a lot of food available to you, Thanksgiving still exists. Kind of taunting you, right? like 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 kind of like scaring you. Uh, make, and there, I mean, if you've worked at a food bank around Thanksgiving, there's this sort of really sense of important urgency that that turkeys and other foods like go out to people who need them. And it's this act of mercy and this act of kindness and this act of goodness. But there's also this shadow associated with it of like, oh my God, they won't have a turkey on Thanksgiving. And I mean that's that's tragic, right, and sad, and you want to have people sharing the things that you take for granted. But it's interesting to think that that there's something about harvest festivals that is rooted in the unpredictability of having this thing and how having it makes it special and how interesting that is when we consider – when we kind of reframe the idea of food as a platonic concept that exists independently of experience, yeah. right? That like food is going to be there. This is, this is like hyper-reality. This is not how it actually works. But this idea that food is going to be there in the abstract and you have to kind of like create a food concrete that mirrors the notion abstract notion of food uh, in order to kind of like satisfy the demands of the day. And, and maybe the more honest way to do it is to start from the assumption that you're not going to have Thanksgiving and then make it, as opposed to the idea that you must have Thanksgiving and then kind of like 
feed it to, to its ideological satisfaction. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's all, you know, it's, it's like, uh, go if you, if you like, uh, if you're like, uh, an urban hipster and you live in a, a gentrified neighborhood, go to the people who live there and have them teach you how to, uh, farm urban farm <laughs> in your in your backyard and how to and this is just as absurd a platonic <laughs> how to let how to let you, one third of your land lie fa- fallow and to uh sow the 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 fish into the ground to uh you know fertilize the what i'm saying is that don't tell your landlord just start digging holes in your living room and putting fish under the floorboards <laughs> and that way you'll live a more authentic and satisfying life <laughs> because your food will be realer and less phony mm. <laughs> I just, exactly. uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Well, uh, we're a strong re- misreader of, uh, Thanksgiving traditions. Pete, I'm thankful for you and thankful for, uh, your podcasting with me all of these many times, especially when ha- we have the opportunity to do our storied two handers. Uh, you know what? And I'm thankful for you, Matt. And I'm, I'm thankful for all of the wisdom and feeling and candor that you bring to the table at these podcasts, uh, which I, I don't know if I thank you enough for. Crazy and- Uncle Matt getting <laughs> drunk and spouting off at the Thanksgiving podcast table. <laughs> Look, last time I checked, this was about putting turkey in my mouth, not words, okay? <laughs> well, thanks, Pete. I, 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 uh, uh, be- because I love you, I, def- I deflect your compliment with a joke. <laughs> You know, is that's that's as much of the American way as anything else. <laughs> and thanks very much for listening. Hey, uh, we'd be very grateful if you headed over to Overthinking It and did the uh, uh, took a look at the gift guide there, and you can uh, buy a thing or two. You can even buy anything on Amazon if you enter Amazon through one of our links. We get a little we get a little kickback. Uh, you can remember that all year, but uh, but remember it uh, mostly around the holidays where uh, there are there are websites who uh, who need a couple bucks in Q4 just to uh, to pay. Uh, to to keep the 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 word orphanage open, I don't. Know, that's uh, it's, it's <laughs> terrible. God God bless us, everyone. It's not the Christmas podcast yet. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve.